Hi, you are listening to the Inspired Minds podcast special episode. Uh, and my name is Jeff Watson, your gracious and grateful host. Um, yeah, this was a fun one. This interview, uh, it was basically the Batman. Like, basically, Batman is this guy because he owns the film rights to Batman. He bought these film rights in the early 80s or mid 80s. No, actually early 80s. He bought the film rights to Batman. And why? Because he, this is all in the interview, by the way, of course. But because he was such a Batman fan when he was a kid. And then he saw the Adam West version, hated it, and then decided to buy them his film rights to make every other movie since 1989. So including now. And I had an incredible conversation with this guy because this is like King Nerd. I called him King Geek. Come to think of it, um, because we got along really, really well. I got to talk about Carl Jung again. This is like the second time. Um, and I got to talk about the Silver Surfer. And he made an amazing joke about uh, Trump. And it's basically it's that Trump is just Richie Rich in shorts. <laughs> the comic nerds out there will probably understand that one. But it, it was just fantastic. Um, and he's done a lot. And I will kind of rattle off a few of these things for you. Basically every movie from Batman on, and he's the executive producer on these things, so he shapes the vision. Uh, so he's also, because of the other, he's got the Joker, he's got the Lego Batman movie, the Justice League, he was the executive producer on. So, But he was just a warm guy, really wonderful guy, actually, and a fantastic story about it, and extremely humble, I noticed as well. So um, one of my favorites, but I have to say this really quickly before uh, anybody gets too bored. Um, there's a fun story about this because this is actually dedicated to my friend, Michael E. Simpson, who's been the, he's the exec producer. He's just a super dear friend of mine. And uh, he just started writing actually for uh, Backstage, which is fantastic. It's like an industry, uh, major entertainment uh, trade magazine. So good for him. And I love him to death. We were talking about, I don't know, like a month ago, and um, we were uh, talking more about the podcast. We talk all the time. And he went to go see The Batman. And then at the end credit, it says Michael Uslin, executive producer. He comes out. He calls me. He says, I'm going to get this guy for the podcast. And I'm like, that ain't not going to happen. And he pursued, and he didn't stop, and he persevered. So nevertheless, you persevered, my friend. Good work. Um but again, it was fantastic. What an eye-opening conversation for me in so many ways. Uh, so yeah, da 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 da. No. Hello, Mr. Michael Uslin. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, you know nobody's ever really gotten it exact since my grandfather hit Ellis Island. Uh, but Uslin is it? Okay, Ellis Island. Well, that's a that, that's quite a reference. Um, <laughs> Again, thank you so much. Um, as I mentioned uh, a second ago before we started this, I'm a proud nerd of all forms of art um, and mythology uh, and cannot wait to discuss that with you further. But I like to start these interviews off with a particular question, and I might know the answer to this, but I might not. And that is simply, what was the first thing that ever inspired you when you were a kid and why? Was it book, TV, film? What do you remember? Probably since I am a baby boomer and I'm out of the um, original television generation, I would have to say um, it would have been the trifecta of 
Davy Crockett, Zorro, and Superman on TV. Wow. Yeah. Uh, quick side note, by the way, fun fact. Not many people know this. I'm apparently a direct descendant of Mr. Davy Crockett. No kidding. <laughs> Very interesting. I was going to do a whole project on the Alamo, the true story of the Alamo and the people who were there. Uh, historically accurate. And that was the project that almost drove me out of the industry just before Batman happened. Uh, but, but that whole Alamo Davy Crockett story is part of my own personal trauma. Interesting. Would you care to discuss that because of how that went? Sure. Um, I bought the rights to Batman when I was a kid in my twenties. I went to DC Comics and said, um, you know, I can't stand the fact that the whole world's image of Batman comes from the 66 TV show where Batman was played as a joke, where people around the world were laughing at Batman. That had killed me. And I had vowed that one day I would show the world the true Batman, the dark and serious creature of the night, as created by Bill Finger and Bob Kane in 1939. So I went to the president of DC Comics. Um, he thought I was out of my mind. He said, Michael, for God's sake, don't do this. I don't want to see you lose all your money. Don't you understand that since Batman went off the air on television, the brand is as dead as a dodo. <laughs> Nobody's interested in Batman anymore. And I said, yeah, but Saul, this was Saul Harrison. I said, Saul, nobody's ever seen a comic book movie done in a dark and serious way. It'll be like a whole new form of entertainment. And he said, is there any way I can talk you out of this? And I said, no. He said, all right, schmoozle, come on in. Um, that began a six-month negotiation. On October 3rd, 1979, my new partner, who was my dad's age, Ben Melnicker, a legend in the movie industry, uh, he and I bought the rights to Batman and set out on what turned out to be a human endurance contest. I was turned down by every studio and mini major in Hollywood. I was told it was the worst idea they ever heard. I, told, I was told I was crazy. As a result, Jeff, it took 10 years before we could get the first Batman movie made. 10 years of rejection, and it was nightmarish. Um, I needed to find ways to bring in money in the interim to survive, to pay my bills the next week. And one of the things that I had done was a mini series for PBS American Playhouse called Three Sovereigns for Sarah with Vanessa Redgrave, Patrick McGowan, Kim Hunter, and Phyllis Thaxter. And it was the 100% historically accurate tale of the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. I am a history major and I'm a history buff. So anytime I get to incorporate one of my passions in life into my work is a great thing. Um, that was heralded. That was heralded. Um, the reviews were awesome. And I wound up next making a deal with CBS and Lorimar to do the story of the Alamo and the people who were there. And this was not the John Wayne story. This was based on detailed research by two of the leading historians uh, in the world of, uh, of the Alamo and Crockett. And they had a book that came out that we had uh, optioned the rights to. So to make a long story short, we had a great screenplay written by one of the top writers of the day of uh, miniseries. We had one of the great miniseries directors on board. We were going to go down and shoot it in Brackenfield, Texas, where John Wayne had built the replica of the Alamo. Huh. I forget. We were maybe 60 days away from that. 
when on the same day, one of the heads of Lorimar and the head of programming at CBS left their respective positions. Now, we had an order for the miniseries. And I was told by Lorimar, well, once you get an order, it's never rescinded. I uh, naively began spending my producer fee that had not yet shown up. And uh, all of a sudden, they told us, freeze everything for two weeks till the new management comes in. The new management came in and canceled all the projects of the old management. I had cleared my schedule for the upcoming year because I was still line producing in those days and was going to be with this thing from beginning to end. So I wiped out all opportunities and prospects. Mm. And now this thing went belly up at the last second. I had already started to spend my fee, which I later learned was in an outbox with a stamp on it uh, before it was stopped. And I had my back up against the wall. I had no money. I had a wife. And uh, at that point, I had a wife and two children. And my sage father-in-law, Dr. Morris Osher, who founded the Cincinnati Eye Institute, flew out. And he sat me down. He said, Michael, you know, this is why you went to law school. This is why you started your career as a motion picture production attorney at a major studio, so that not only could you learn how to finance and produce movies and network, but you also would have something to fall back on if everything fell apart. And he said, a measure of a person's success is by how hard they try, not by what they achieve. And he said, you've done your best. You've, you've, you've worked as hard as you could. But now it's time to man up and take care of your wife and kids. And I said, I know, but I'm, I'm so close. I have these other deals percolating. And uh, he said, tell me something. How long do you think it will be till you have a check in your hand for six figures? Not a contract, not a deal, a check for six figures. And I thought about it. And I told him I, I could do that in five months. And he said to me, okay. For the next five months, I'm paying all your bills. Wow. But at 6 p.m., five months from today, if you don't have a check for six figures, you give it all up and you go be a lawyer and do your thing. I thanked him profusely. So I was already working 15 hours a day. So now I'm working 20 hours a day uh. um, on different projects to try to make something happen. And one of those projects was my first animated TV series that I created. I was working with uh, Andy Hayward at Deke on that and um, uh, Coca-Cola Telecommunications, which was Columbia Pictures syndicated TV arm. So everybody I was working with knew about this deadline. And coming down the stretch, they actually got this deal done and put together, but waited a few days so that they could send me by Federal Express the contracts to sign along with a check for six figures. And that wound up arriving sometime between noon and 3 p.m. on the final day of five months. And that money allowed me to pay back my father-in-law and get me to Batman. So um, sometimes, Jeff, no matter what you do, sometimes you just need a guardian angel. And I was lucky I had mine. You absolutely did. I, that's an amazing story. Oh, that is fantastic. Um and you're right. That I love that. I love that statement about trying. My dad and my father-in-law. That was that was their their statements to me, and they repeated it to me. And it's in the last letter my dad sent me before he passed away, wow. just to remind me of that. And I have that framed and on my desk, so I get to see it every day. I love it. And you know, forgive me if I'm a little bit off here, but um, there's a lot of humility in that statement. 
Well, humility. You know what? It's, it's all about believing in yourself right. and believing in your work. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah, actually, this is not going to be so quick, so pardon me. Ben Melnicker and I had been rejected by virtually every major. We had one left to go. And we're at this meeting, and I am pitching my heart out for my dark and serious Batman. And he said, no way. He said, um, Michael, Batman will never be a successful movie because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. Hmm. And I said, are you talking about the little redheaded girl from Broadway who sings the song tomorrow? He goes, yeah. I said, well, what does that have to do with Batman? And he said, oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. That was my rejection. So then he turned to Ben and he said, Ben, you and I have known each other for decades. He said, if you boys really want to make a Batman movie, I'll consider it. But it has to be that funny potbelly pow zap wham Batman from TV because that's all audiences will remember and love. And I said, no. And with that, he pushed his chair in and leaned in in front of me. And he said, son, better to have a movie made than no movie at all. And I said, no. Yeah. That was it. That was our last major studio. And after that meeting, we're sitting on a bench on the studio lot. I'm as despondent as you can imagine. And Ben, again, who was my father's age, turns to me and he says, you know, Michael, it's pretty ironic that our last no came from you. He said, you know what that makes you? I said, yeah, Ben, an idiot. He said, no, no, no. He said, it makes you Batman's Batman. I said, what are you talking about? He said, Michael, you just gave up the chance to make your first movie because you are protecting this vision of what Batman should be, how Batman was created. You are protecting Batman. You are defending Batman. You are Batman's Batman. Wow. Right. Well, he said, now let's get up out of here. There is other ways to do this. We'll go to independent sources. We'll go to foreign sources and we'll redouble our efforts. Let's get going. And with that, we kind of uh, jumped off the bench and jumped into movie history ultimately. But the upshot of the story, Jeff, is that 10 years later, our first Batman movie comes out thanks to the genius of Tim Burton, my dear friend Anton First, who was our production designer um, in that magical summer of 1989. We break every box office record. We are having a global cultural impact uh, in a way nobody predicted, in a way that was about to change Hollywood forever. And my phone rings. And it's the Annie guy from 10 years ago. And he says, Michael, I'm just calling to congratulate you on the success of Batman. I always said you were a visionary. <laughs> so I turned to Ben and I said, you know, I think I've, I've got the epiphany now. I think I figured it out. If you don't believe them when they tell you how bad you are and how your work and ideas suck, and if you then don't believe them when they start telling you how great you are and how wonderful all your ideas and work are, and just believe in yourself and in your own work, 
you'll do just fine. And Ben was like Glinda, the good witch of the North with his little magic wand said, that's all there is. <laughs> um, and that was a lesson I learned that way on that day. And what's really great too, you know, your book, Batman's Batman. And by the way, I love the subtitle, uh, The Land of Bilk and Honey. Fantastic. But what's interesting too about your career is that there's a, unlike a lot of people, there's a clear through line. Batman is really my through line. Correct. Correct. I guess that's kind of what I'm implying. It, it's just, it's amazing to watch and to see somebody with such a clear vision and not let anything else get it in the way. And to me, that is true artistry. Well, people often tell me, yeah, especially in interviews, you know, we have a movie like The Batman out right now that's doing great. Yeah. The reviews have been incredible. The fans love it. And they say, uh, could you ever possibly have imagined, you know, 33 years later, this would be such a continuing global success in, in movies, TV, animation, games? And I say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always envisioned this. I never doubted it for a second. Yeah. Let me tell you something, Jeff. When the whole world is telling you you suck, when the whole world is saying no, you got to look deep inside yourself. It tests your mettle as a human being. And I had to deal with this question. Is the whole world right and I'm just being stubborn? Or do I absolutely believe in this and absolutely believe in myself? And I kept coming up with the latter answer. And that's, you know, that's what gets me through. Um, you have to have a support system. And I had that with my parents, my wife, my friends, my mentors, um, people like Stan Lee and uh, oh, so many others who were so important to my getting through that time and, and uh, continuing on in my career. And what a career it's been so far. You know, you mentioned, obviously, um, the films uh, going from 89 to Tim Burton to uh, the uh, current version, and clearly I've seen them all because I'm that guy, like many others. And what I think is interesting is, and again, I, I want to get your perspective on this because I'm just another Matt Batman nerd with a theory. But I've noticed that the films are getting darker and darker. And my my idea that I've I've had is that because Batman is an archetype, um, which I want to get into in a second, also. But the it seems to me that the films perhaps consciously or subconsciously match the tenor of the times absolutely absolutely you, you you just hit the nail on the head in in my humble opinion cinema at its best is a mirror it's a mirror of society it's a mirror that the movie screen holds up forcibly to the face of society warts and all and forces people to take a good hard look at themselves now, if you go back to, let's start with Tim Burton. Um, when, when that was filmed in 1988, it was a different world. Um, we were living in a black and white world of good versus evil. Um, in the comics, the Joker was the clown prince of crime. Right. And that movie reflects that. By the time Chris Nolan came in to restore the darkness and dignity to Batman, we were in a 9-11 post-9-11 time, and the Dark Knight trilogy, which I contend is one movie in three acts, huh. um, has such thematic heft to it and direct allusions to the falling of the World Trade Center and life after that. 
it, it, it is staggering, but, but it is definitely a statement of our time and our place and our state of mind and our foibles and what it takes to pick ourselves up from failure or from disaster. Um, it was very clear. You know, when I lecture around the world at colleges, universities, Comic-Cons, I repeatedly get comments from people about when they were sitting in the dark night and there was a scene aboard a boat and people were given a choice. They could, in order to save themselves, press a button and blow up another boat filled with people or they could choose not to do it. So it's a moral choice. What do you do when you're presented with a moral choice and the choice is bad and worse? People continually tell me that in the darkness of the movie theater, when they were sitting there, they were forced to come up with a realization as to what they would have done. Now, for a comic book movie, a superhero movie, to to have that kind of thematic heft, to have that kind of emotional impact on an audience that they carry with them for the rest of their lives, that alone elevated the filmmaking process of comic book movies. Because once you walked out of Christopher Nolan's movies, you no longer had to say, oh, that was a great comic book movie. You could say that was a great film. Now, if you take that to the next two steps, you get another genius in Todd Phillips who had a vision for Joker. Mm -hmm. And that movie, that movie is a commentary on our times. It is about the drastic loss of civility that we have in the society and polarization as um, reemphasized at the Academy Award show the other night. It is about a society where people now talk at each other instead of with each other. It's about a society that neglects and turns its head when it comes to issues of mental health, which are directly tied to gun violence. And boy, you know, that, that forced everybody to look in the mirror. And now we have Matt Reeves, the Batman. And that to me is absolutely a commentary on the dark times that we've been experiencing and are experiencing, uh, whether it's pandemic, post-pandemic, Ukraine, uh, political darkness, what, whatever your darkness might be, uh, inflation, um, uncertainty, it, it all comes together and is, I think, at the soul of the movie. Without a doubt. And I absolutely, in fact, that's why I asked that question, right? And, you know, it's funny that you bring up the uh, pandemic, not funny, but interesting that you bring up the pandemic because I've I kind of realized a while ago that we're in a pandemic of disconnection and it's getting worse and worse. And what I find interesting about the films is not only does it, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of uh, resonance, there's a lot of mythology in there, but for me, and again, Batman seems to be kind of a, kind of an, almost like I said, like an archetype, you know, young Carl Jung talked about, you know, the persona and the shadow and the outlaw and the hero and all these all these different things that are kind of embedded in our DNA and the unconsciousness. Um, and it, it, but it's interesting too, because Batman seems to be a connector in some strange way, a connector of justice, a, a connector of pain. Um, am I getting too dorky? Tell no, me. Not, not at all. And, and here's two more points that come out of that. Every Batman movie. Yeah. It, it, well, let me start with this. It, I, I, I kind of chuckle when I see, you know, some of the, minority reviews that will say, oh, the movie is really just too dark or it's too dreary. It's like, duh, it's Batman. 
I mean, that's that's my first response to that. <laughs> but every single Batman movie, and especially the ending of The Batman, which is in theaters now, is about hope. Yeah. It is all about hope. Yeah. And, and, and I got to be careful. I don't want to do spoilers. Um, but you see a young Batman in this movie who is all about revenge. Vengeance is his name. And you watch a character arc. You watch a transition take place uh, over the course of this film. And then it just glows with hope as you see Batman evolve. And that brings me to the next point. Why is Batman so successful like this? Why can he change so much over the years from the comic books to the movies to the cartoons? It's because he's human. It's because he's a superhero whose greatest superpower is simply his humanity. And I'm telling you, um, I speak as the boy who loved Batman. When I was eight years old, I truly believed in my heart of hearts that if I studied hard and worked out really hard, and if my dad bought me a cool car, I could be this guy. We can all identify with Batman. We all do identify with Batman. His origin story. The kid who watches his parents murdered before his eyes and at that moment sacrifices his childhood to make a commitment in his vow that he is going to get the bad guy who did this. He's going to get all the bad guys, even if he has to walk through hell for the rest of his life in order to honor that commitment. That origin story is so primal that what we found is it not only trans, uh, transcends borders, it transcends cultures. and. I'll tell you, as an eight-year-old, I never once thought of my parents dying until I read The Origin of Batman. And that had an emotional impact on me that I've carried with me for the, for, for the rest of my life. It's an incredible thing. And it all comes down to his humanity. I think one of the most fun moments I had was when Dark Knight came out. And I flipped on Fox News and found every right-wing political pundit was claiming the dark knight as their boy. And then I flipped on MSNBC and every single left-wing political pundit was claiming the dark knight as theirs. It is a human being and we get to project ourselves onto him. We get to project our own philosophies onto him, our own politics onto him. If there's one universal question I get everywhere I speak, it's Michael, tell us the secret. Which is the one true Batman? And it's the easiest question in the world to answer. The one true Batman is the Batman you were first introduced to when you were eight or 12 or 16 or whatever, be it a comic book, a cartoon, a movie, whatever. That becomes your personal true Batman. But it still leaves room for every other iteration from Batman meets Scooby-Doo in the cartoons to the Lego Batman to the Pow Zap Wham, Adam West Batman, to the Tim Burton, to the Chris Nolan, to the Matt Reeves Batmans. It is a lush, lush world for those of us who are comic book superhero fans. Sure. And that, yeah, he's a cipher. Yeah. I absolutely understand that. Um, and it's interesting, actually, on a personal note, I will say this. My intro to comics was like Richie Rich, right? Because I was five or whatever it was or six, and I, I I loved him, but I had no concept of what comics could be until I think it was like a Fantastic 
No, I know what it was. It was a Silver Surfer, I remember reading as a kid. My uncles had it. And I was so fascinated by this almost cipher-like character, come to think of it. You know, that he had, it was, he can get a surf war for God's sakes. Like, I know that he was like a hip thing with the sixties, perhaps, but it was that concept of, again, that, that, that archetype, that cipher, something that was a little bit bigger than this kind of binary more, uh, morality that I experienced with Superman and some of those other characters. Yeah. Well, I had personal revelations, uh, with those same characters at various points in my life. There was a day that came when I realized Richie Rich was Donald Trump in short pants. <laughs> That was traumatic. Then there was the, the moment I realized the silver surfer was an allusion to Jesus. And, and if you look at his commentaries, you look especially at his soliloquies, um, it, there really is so much of that fundamentally a part of him and everything he stood for. Wow. I didn't think I'd be talking about the silver surfer, but here we are. That's fantastic. And speaking of which, and so this is what I'm ex- really excited to ask about. So I know that in 1972 that you were over at Indiana, uh, Indiana University and you fought for and got a, uh, a course, the first course in history, or at least in the U.S., maybe history, to focus specifically on comics as an art form. And there's a particular thing that I want to call out and that I, I saw that you uh, had said where First of all, that it's the comics are a true American art form. And I love this line as indigenous to this country as jazz, which I didn't think about. I've always thought it was just jazz. No, no, no. It, it absolutely is. Um, you know, many of the creators of the superheroes in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s uh, in particular were Jewish. And uh, came from a Jewish experience. Uh, Stan Lee once told me that the Gollum was uh, was a uh, inspiration for the creation of the Hulk. Um, th- there, there is so much of that storytelling. So um, I, I think I know the 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 tale you wish me to tell here. <laughs> um, so I was a junior. This was the early seventies at Indiana University, and they had an experimental curriculum department, which conceptually was that if you had an idea for a college course that had never been taught before, provided you had the backing of a department on campus, you then would have the right to pitch it to a dean and a panel of professors. If it was approved, you could teach it for three hours of credit. Uh, And and this would be true even though I was just an undergrad. So um, that gave me an idea that I could take my passion in life, comic books, and create the world's first accredited college course about it. And my points were um, comic books are a true American art form. Comic book superheroes are our modern day mythology. Um, That comic books reflect, they're mirrors of our society that reflect a changing American culture as they've been published every Wednesday since 1934 um, and gives us insight into our Language, our fads, our slang, our mores, um, our biases and prejudices. It's all there in the pages of comic books and the psychological impact of comics on their audience and comic books as literature. That was, that was the way I was approaching it. So I went to the folklore department and, um, my folklore professor said, Michael, you're absolutely right with what you're saying. Um, it doesn't matter if we call them. King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or the Avengers or the Justice League. 
It's all about brave heroes fighting the demons and dragons of their day. This is no different than Beowulf or Ulysses or King Arthur. I'll back you. So armed with that, uh, I go in to pitch my course. Um, my hair is down to my shoulders. I'm wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt. I have my hippie love beads on. Thank you very much. <laughs> and a pile of Superman and Batman comics under my arm. And as I walk into this room, the dean, who had this little pair of half glasses perched on the edge of his nose, he looks down at me over his glasses and says, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? That's when I knew I had big problems ahead. So I started my pitch. And I said, Dean, the ancient gods of Greece, Rome, and Egypt all still exist, except today they wear spandex and capes. The Greeks called them, um, the Greeks called them Hermes. The Romans called them Mercury. I call them the Flash. The Greeks called them Poseidon. The Romans called them Neptune. I call them Aquaman. And with that, he cuts me off. He says, Mr. Uslan, stop. He goes, come on, give me a break. He said, I read comic books when I was a little boy. I would read every issue of Superman comics I could get my hands on. But all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for little children, and I reject your theory. All this, right. Jeff, became a life-changing moment for me because figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose, rather than bow my head and pick up my funny books and turn around and walk out, I stood my ground. And I said, Dean, may I ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me like I was nuts. He goes, yeah, so? I said, so Dean, very, very briefly, could you just summarize for me the story of Moses? And with that, he sits back, folds his arms, looks at me, and he goes, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, but um, I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. A Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and sent him down the River Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he becomes a great hero to his people. But I said, Dean, th thank you. Stop. That was great. That was great. Thanks. Um, you said before that you read Superman comics when you were a kid. By any chance, do you remember the origin of Superman? <laughs> he goes, of course, the planet Krypton was blowing up. Yeah. A scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents who raise him as their own son. When he grows up and then the dean stops stares at me for what I swear to you was an eternity and says, your course is accredited. <laughs> that was it, Jeff. I was now the world's first college professor of comic books. Amazing. And then as I understand it too, then there was a, a media blitz. They kind of got on the media went, what is this? Is that correct? Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I was all excited that I had pulled this off. I talked to my mom. And my mother says, Michael, this is great, <clears throat> but you can have the greatest creative wares in the world. But if you don't market them, if you don't market yourself, no one will ever know about them. I said, Ma, <laughs> I'm 20 years old. I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. I have no money. What am I supposed to do? She said, you're a smart boy. You'll think of something. <clears throat> so again, figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose, I picked up the telephone and called United Press International. Back then, UPI was as yeah. big a new syndicate as the Associated Press is today. Yeah. So um, I asked to speak to a reporter. Guy gets on the phone, and I started screaming at him. What's wrong with you? You're not doing your job. 
He goes, excuse me? You're supposed to be the watchdogs of our society. This is outrageous. He says, calm down, sir. He goes, what are you talking about? I go, what am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I just heard there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state, they're using my money to teach our kids comic books? I said, this has got to be a communist plot to subvert the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. (laughs) Three days later, the guy tracked me down, found out that the course was real, showed up at my doorstep with a photographer. Um, The story went out. It was a third of a page long. It was picked up by virtually every newspaper in North America, a bunch in Europe, and my phone started to ring. I was invited on radio and TV talk shows. I never taught one class that wasn't filled with television cameras and reporters. Wow. NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News, you name it, they were there. And um, two weeks later, I get a call one day, and it is this exuberant male voice. And it's, hi, is this Mike Uslin? I go, yeah. He goes, hi, I'm Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. Okay. My burning bush moment. Yeah. I was talking to my God. Yeah. And he said, Mike, everywhere I turn, I'm reading about you in newspapers. I'm watching you on TV. Uh, What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? And that was the moment my idol became my mentor and then my friend. And uh, ultimately, I was one of the producers of his memorial at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Wow. Um, Two hours later, I get a call from Saul Harrison, vice president of DC Comics. He said, um, we've been listening to you on the radio, reading about you in magazines. Um, You're a very innovative young man. We'd like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we can work together. And geek dream come true. I wind up being offered a job at DC Comics. I'll work there in the summers, and then they're going to put me on retainer while I'm back at Indiana finishing school. It was absolute dream come true. Yes, you are King Geek. That is what a fantastic story. And again, it's his through line, the through line of Batman, but also the through line of your vision. Yeah, but about shoving your foot in the door when you see it open a crack. It's about knocking on doors and then getting them slammed in your face. And then picking yourself up, going back and knock again and knock again and knock again until your knuckles bleed. You know, my life story is the fact that the Batman movie franchise was built on my bloody knuckles. Yeah. Uh, And that's what it was about, that 10-year human endurance contest. So, um, uh, and again, luckily I had a support system of parents, teachers, wife, ultimately, family, uh, friends. And um, that made all the difference. Fortunate man. I got a couple more questions for us. Uh, well, first of all, I did. I cannot miss this question. As I understand it, The Boy Who Loved Batman is going to be a Broadway play. The Nederlander Organization of Broadway, um, which owns like half the theaters in Broadway, um, they uh, read my book and they said, you know, coming out of COVID, we are looking for plays that are about people who dream big, who persevere during really hard times and challenges and um, who ultimately make their dreams come true. He said, your story could be inspiring to audiences at this time. It could, and it's certainly entertaining. We think it's exactly the right story for this moment uh, as new normal sets into Broadway. 
So I couldn't be more excited about it. It's it's just been it's incredible, and it's based on my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, yeah. um, and the sequel uh, memoir, which is uh, went on sale this month called Batman's Batman. Um, and Stanley always said, Michael, be sure you get in the plugs. So Stan, I got this covered. <laughs> We're both available on like Amazon, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, et cetera. And uh, I'm happy to report that the audiobook versions that I narrated are also on sale. Um, so that's kind of fun as well. I, I was going to plug it, but you did my job for me. So that's... <laughs> I've been trained by the best. You have. <laughs> I should learn from the uh from from Stanley uh as well. Um so a couple more things I do want to ask this question because again as I mentioned this podcast is kind of ultimately about storytelling and the muse um and as I said earlier I think that storytelling really is I heard someone say that the shortest distance between two people was a story which I, which I liked. Yeah. But the thing I'm I'm, I'm interested because I'm so fascinated by this of the oral storytelling tradition, right? With like the griots in Africa or the minstrels in Europe, um, and it seems to be kind of a lost art in terms of the oral part of it. But I do believe and see storytelling kind of evolving uh, into well, not perhaps evolving, but it's done a fantastic job in film, music, and uh, television, and some of those art forms. I think it's absolutely true what you say. You know, um, I consider myself a storyteller. Uh, my dad was a storyteller. Um, but my dad was, could also tell a joke. I can't tell a joke to save my life, but, but I can tell a story. Uh, and, and, and I think you're, you're right about that. It is that sacred tradition that has permeated humanity and, uh, since the earliest days of civilization. And it's every single culture, every single culture. No matter if you were a culture that was deeply ensconced in one specific geographical area, or you were part of a nomadic uh, background, a nomadic tribe um, who uh, was part of a diaspora, um, the storytelling perseveres. The lessons, the morals, the ethics, um, the stories of hope, the stories of redemption, uh, it's all the most critical part of the oral tradition. Correct. And, you know, we we were uh, as humans in the earlier days. We would talk stories about you know the Peloponnesian War or famine or plague, and those are generational transmissions, right? Just passing down. And also, I I think recipes can be stories, right? No question. Coming from a grandmother who was a cook in Hungary, um, and uh, who who was a miracle worker. <laughs> well, while I was growing up, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I work with a woman, actually, uh, who has 100 recipes in her head from her Mexican heritage. I love it. That's great. It's, it's just so important to me. Well, listen, um, I guess I have one kind of final question, but let me go backwards again. Boy, you love Batman. Look for the Broadway play. Shit, I think I'm going to go out there for that. And then, of course, uh, Batman's Batman. And again, that land of milk and honey. Fantastic. Not a well, you know, um, Hollywood has a lot of great and creative people in it. It also has a lot of not so great people who are egomaniacs, um, who are entitled, um, who are screamers. And depending on both the luck of the gods and common sense, and staying rooted to who you are, 
while all this swirls around you. This place can be at any moment a land of creative milk and honey or a land of bilk and money. And uh, Batman's Batman tells the story of both over my 45-year career. And I understand it has a lot of uh, good uh, suggestions, kind of how to navigate the waters and how to be a good producer. And- it just kind of, ha- it's all still part of that. How do you make your dreams come true? How do you persevere? Um, you know, it, 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 it's a life's lesson book in not only producing, it's specific about producing, but I like to think everything I talk about could be applied to no matter what your passion or your job might be. Of course. Of course. And, you know, this just hit me kind of before we wrap up, but um, I, the thing that's so nice, like I said, about Batman is that he is a cipher and you can kind of pour into uh, whatever you want into him and whatever you inspired by. And in my estimation, you know, you could absolutely say that Batman is a warrior, but I believe that we all are warriors. We just have to tap into it. And that is what I like so much about that character, specifically the Batman character, because he, for me, again, for me, he resonates that idea of being a warrior that I can be as well. Maybe I don't have the suit. Maybe I don't have the the batarang, but I can still be that person. You know, do we have time for one more story? Or we By all means, please. I had nine hours with you. It's up to you. All right. All right. Let, we'll wrap it up with this one. And this is the story that I conclude my first memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman, with. Um, I get a call one day out of the blue from a colonel at West Point. And he informs me that the cadets of West Point every year have a Cadets Choice Award that they give to the person who most symbolizes the code of honor of West Point. And this particular year, which was the year of the Dark Knight, they awarded it to Batman as the Dark Knight. And he asked me if I would come up, accept the award on behalf of Batman, and speak at lunch to 4,500 cadets. I said, it would be my honor. So my wife and I go up there and it was magnificent. The whole day was incredible. They bring us in for lunch hour into, it looked like a set of Harry Potter, massive stone building. Mm. It comes to a V with vaulted ceilings and flags and a stone balcony at the center of the V. And then two long halls with the 4,500 cadets at their tables. And I said, um, I didn't even ask. I said, how long would you like me to speak? Normally I speak 30 to 45 minutes and I could do an hour. He says, oh no, I'm sorry. He goes, um, the whole lunch hour here is 15 minutes. I said, oh my God, you want me to speak for just 15 minutes? He goes, well, no, we're going to do the ceremony. I'm going to give you the award. They're going to have to eat. Got to do it for less than three minutes. And with that, he hands me the microphone. So I'm up on this stone balcony looking at over 4,500 cadets standing at attention. And I said, cadets of West Point, when Bruce Wayne was a boy, he saw his parents murdered on an altar of blood on the concrete sidewalk of Gotham City. And at that moment, sacrificing his childhood, he made a vow to get the bad guy who did this and to get all the bad guys, even if he had to walk through hell for the rest of his life in order to accomplish it. In Honoring that commitment, he ultimately became an urban warrior, the Dark Knight. I said, Cadets of West Point, you are Batman. Yeah. 
And with that, Jeff, the place erupted. I mean, they went crazy. They were clapping and cheering and jumping up and down. And it went on for minutes. I still get the chills thinking about that moment. And that was an incredible moment, but it was topped one week later when I opened my mail and it was a letter and it went something like this, dear Mr. Uselin, you don't know me. I'm the mother of one of the cadets you spoke to at West Point last week. I'm not sure if you understand what you did. She goes, but this is serious business for us families. Our boys and girls are all going off next month to either Afghanistan or Iraq. And they are currently walking around West Point, high-fiving each other, bouncing off each other's chests, saying, I am Batman. Wow. You are Batman. Wow. She said, what you've done is give them a calling card. And in the years to come, no matter where they may be, no matter what foreign battlefield they may be on, where they meet each other again, this will be their mutual greeting to each other. And she goes, I can't thank you enough for that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Jeff. I mean, oh, my God. Right. So that to me just sums up everything. And that moment alone was worth it by far the 10 years of struggle, the 10 years of not knowing where my next dollar was coming from, the, the 10 years of hell that I went through was all worth it for this moment in time. And that's how I ended my book. Beautiful, beautiful. You obviously inspired someone or many other people. And that's, it's that inspiration that you can pass on to others. And it's just absolutely magical. Um, I have one final question for you, good sir. And that is something that I always end these podcasts with. And that is, as a storyteller, when do you know you're done? Um, my dad had the quote. Um, it came from one of the Roosevelt's. I don't remember if it was Franklin, Eleanor, or Elliot. It was one of them about uh, speaking. And it was um, be brief, be entertaining, be seated. So I have tried to follow my dad's quotation. Your dad sounds like a brilliant man. He was. Mr. Michael, thank you. And I mean this in all sincerity, obviously. Thank you so much for doing this. You have elevated not only the storytelling of comic books, but you've elevated the dork in me uh, farther than I ever thought. I want to tell you how much I enjoyed speaking with you today, Jeff. Um, I am just very, very proud over my comic book reading and collecting lifetime to be able to say to everyone, the geeks have inherited the earth. Yes. Yes, we have, haven't we? All right. uh, Good. All right, here we go. And goodbye, everybody.